So, if you can remember, last week, you know, you were feeling somewhat evangelistic. You woke up and you decided that today's the day that everybody needed to know about Jesus. And so, you, uh, being so evangelistic in spirit and wanting the world to know about Jesus, you went underneath the bed and you got out from your collection of t-shirts, those old school moldy ones, Uh, you got out your witness wear, and you decided to rock a t-shirt that uh, reveals your age and corniness, uh, going back to the days of DC Talk, and across the front, it says, Jesus Freak. (laughs) That's what you have decided to do, Bill, today. Close enough. Disciple. Right? And so, you go out wearing your... Uh, DC Talk garb and your statement that says Jesus Freak on the front and somebody begins to ask you questions about why in the world you'd be wearing such a shirt and eventually gets to questioning you about the nature, the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? And you say in response uh, to them, well, first of all, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus is the agent, the means by which God created the world, and He is the reason, the intention, the end of why God has created the world. Jesus is the one who is preexistent. He always has been. And He is the one who sustains all things. And that person says to you, wow, that's a lot. That's significant. And you say in response to them, we've only just begun. So today, we continue in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 20, taking a look at the person of Jesus. Paul is declaring for the Colossians The identity, the nature, the essence, the person of Jesus Christ. And we continue in verse 18, reading through verse 20. Part 2 today of Jesus stands above all. Listen to the words as Paul writes them. He says this, And He, meaning Jesus, He is the head of the body, the church, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of God. Of his cross. This is God's word. And all God's people said, Amen. So Paul starts out here, or continues, is probably a better word, in using a, a metaphor. We use metaphor all the time, don't we? We use a metaphor to convey, to, to convey meaning about a particular situation or a principle. For example, Silas was nicknamed Dog a long time ago. Okay, I call him that often. Hey, Dog, come here. 
Now, is Silas truly a dog? No. But often in the age of one and two, you would catch him eating off the floor and peeing in the yard. So thus, the nickname, dog. This is indeed, he's, I won't throw him under the bus, but sometimes you will catch him doing one of those two things uh, at the age of five. But nonetheless, he is what I would call dog. It's a metaphor. He's not really a dog. It's a way to communicate. We use those things all the time. And so Paul gives us a metaphor about the nature and the purpose or the nature and the essence of Jesus Christ, and also inherent in it, talks a little bit about who we are as the people of God. He calls Jesus the head of the body, a metaphor about our, uh, the physical nature of our bodies. There is a head, and there is a body. And in that metaphor of the head and the body, the head is the one, at least metaphorically speaking, that has control over the rest of the body. The brain tells the rest of the body what to do, and the body begins to do that. Okay. So what we see here is that, uh, first of all, there is a, there's a relationship that exists between Christ's, Christ and the people, right? the people of God. It's, it, it shows that there's a head and there's a body. Uh, and this body and head exists in a vital relationship. There's life from the head passing to the rest of the body, giving it its function, right? And to be clear, uh, Paul goes on to define what the body is. We see he is the head. We know who the head is, but we also know who the body is and what it is signifying. It's the church. It's an important thing to clarify. It's not all people. It's the church. Those who have embraced and believed in Jesus Christ are those who are living and existing in vital connection to Jesus as the head. They've been united with Him through faith, through repentance, through baptism. Right. So the church, the ecclesia is the word. You may have heard of that word. Some churches are actually calling their church these days ecclesia. It means the, the, the assembled one. The ones that have been called from a place and gathered to a place. You see this word in the book of Exodus, right? So God is calling out people from a people and making these people his very own. Okay? So the, the ecclesia, those who've been called out of Egypt, right? Called out of a place and being brought into another place designed and uh, by God Himself, are those uh, who are the people of God, those who live in vital connection to Him. God's people called out for His purposes is the people of God. But we see, again, going back to the metaphor, that Him being the head of the body means that we live not just in a vital relationship, but one that is vital and, at the very same time, is exists in our submission to Him as sovereign. He's sovereign over His people. He rules. He reigns. He's King. He's Lord of His people. He's in charge. He's the boss. You tracking with me? He's the head of the body. This calls for our submission to Him. 
in a day and age where submission to anyone or anything is not welcomed, unless you're talking about submitting to self, our own desires, our own dreams, our own ways, our own agendas, submission to anyone or anything beyond ourself is something that is very uncomfortable today. We see that the Lord Jesus is the head of the body. And so we are now a people who live in submission to Him. Even in the midst of a day and age where it is frowned upon and where authority is questioned. Let's be clear about the senior pastor of Renovation Church. You know his name. Boo! Right? Not Mike. Jesus. Not Jer, but Jesus. Right? Not Paul, Jesus. Not Tim, Jesus. Not any one of us in this room. None of us are the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is. And I know so many people have said that, and please keep us accountable to this, that we don't want to just say that on paper. We don't want to just put that in some sort of organizational flow chart on the internet to show that we're a biblical expression, and at the end of the day, somebody else is calling the shots. We truly believe and function, and if we ever failed to function this way, we need to repent. We function day to day, nine to five, Monday through Sunday, 365 days a year in every aspect, every nuance of this local church in full submission to Jesus as the senior pastor of Renovation Church. No man is the senior pastor of anything in reference to the people of God except Jesus. So we all Regardless of role or function in the body of Christ, we all stand or fall submitted to Jesus. He's the head of the body. right? He has, in, as the head, dispensed authority. He has given it to leadership, to steward. But in respect and in honor of the true shepherd, the true head of the body, global, universal, throughout time and ages, and in the moment, the local congregation, Jesus is the head of. I said enough about that. He's in charge. The buck stops with Him. And even as we look at this image of the head and the body being the church, we don't see that it's not just a relationship where it's, it's driven by and, 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 and defined by submission to sovereignty, but also independence. Scholars talk about the, the dependent nature of the body. We're dependent upon Jesus as our head. Again, goes against the grain of who we are as a culture. We're training our children day by day, hardwiring them to not be dependent upon us, but to begin to live independently of us. We're hardwired to be self-sufficient. And let's be clear, some of that is very good as people do need to take responsibility for their lives. Somebody needs to get a job, you know what I mean? Stop living in mom's basement playing video games at 27. 
There's something good about that. Discipline, hard work. But at the end of the day, we are not an independent people in any way, shape, or form as the body of Christ, are we? We're dependent. Christ, our head, we're dependent on Him for His will and His word and His life given by the Spirit. We're fully dependent on one another. We're interdependent, aren't we? We're not just living in isolation, me and Jesus. No, we're a part of the body. We're we're connected vitally to our Lord. And at the very same time, we're connected in relationship to one another. We need each other, simply put. We're not independent. We're not autonomous. It doesn't make any sense at all. We're very much interdependent with one another as we are fully dependent on our head, Jesus. He's the head of the body, the church. I do think that, and I don't want to harp, I do think that missional community, at least in our context, is a practical way to measure whether or not you're living as a dependent person. Living in the context of relationships where you're submitting to the gospel and the revealed will of God in the context of community, That shows you're saying every Wednesday night or whatever time that you meet, you're saying, I can't live or do this life on my own. I need Jesus and I need His people. I can't just go golfing and say I'm connecting with God. I need Christ's people. I can't just grab the keys to the boat and take a stroll down the river. I need to go and engage the people of God as they submit to the Word of God. You can measure whether or not you are living dependently upon Jesus and His people interdependently as you look at your life and say, am I living in accountable, gospel-led, interdependent relationship in the context of community? Is that happening? You can measure whether or not you're living dependent. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Jesus stands above all. He alone is the head of the body, the church. Verse 18. Verse 18 goes on to say that He is the beginning. And He is the firstborn from the dead. We see uh, again that this does not mean that He was the first creature. As we talked about last week. Right? Right? This does not mean that he was uh, the first creature. Actually, uh, he's not a creature at all. He's not a created thing. He always has existed. He's before all things, right? Through him, all things were created. He's not a creature at all. He's creator. So it does not mean that. It doesn't even mean that he was the first one that was raised from the dead, was he? So what is going on here? Again, that word, beginning, and that word, firstborn, is getting at primacy, priority, hierarchy, right? He is the one whose resurrection from the dead is the very basis, the very foundation on which anybody else's resurrection from the dead comes from. He's priority. He's first place. He's preeminent. He's first place, we see, in creation, right? We saw that in the last couple of verses. And he's also first place in new creation. 
in recreation. Jesus stands above all. He's preeminent above all in both creation and redemption. And what we see here is that uh, him being the firstborn from the dead shows that he is the founder of a new humanity, isn't he? That's what the scholars say. He's the founder of a new humanity. His resurrection from the dead, and him being the first one in that regard that secured all others' resurrection, he is now the founder of a new humanity that does not live under the power of Satan, does not live under the power of sin, that does not have to face an eternal death. He is the founder of that humanity. He's the firstborn. He's the beginning of those from the dead. A humanity that has hope and living connection with the living God. That's that's Jesus. Preeminence. Priority. And not to beat a horse here again, but the reason he's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead is so that in everything, don't miss that word, in everything, he might be preeminent. Right? Here we are again. We're back to verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. All things are for him. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He's at the top of the triangle. He's the apex. He's the pinnacle. No one is there with Him. Unparalleled essence. Jesus stands above all. In everything, He has preeminence. And again, not to go back to our illustration last week about our tendency to be narcissistic, to stare at ourselves, and to make ourselves the center of the world, but maybe... Some of us in the room here struggle with with gazing at the navel. We're so consumed with self that we need to stop for a minute and take a look at our lives and how we live and our posture and attitude and say, is is Christ preeminent in everything in my life? That's a tough question. Is He first place? Is He the pinnacle? We're good at making Jesus a part of our life, aren't we? We're good at putting Jesus where He belongs, in a percentage, a piece of the pie. But is Jesus preeminent in every aspect of our lives? 24-7, 365. I want you to think for a moment and really seek the Spirit about an area of your life that you are really resisting the Lordship of Jesus. Think about an aspect of your life, a situation, a decision, a relationship, where Jesus is not Lord, where He is not preeminent. And I want you to give the Spirit of God access to your heart in this moment. Is He preeminent in your family? In your marriage, in your job, your profession? Is he preeminent in your ministry here at this church? In the matters of the intellect, what we think about, is he preeminent in our thoughts? In our time, man, that hits, a, hits us hard. 
our, one of our, our most valuable commodity, time. Is Christ preeminent? First place. Does He have priority with your time, in your love and affection that you have for others or don't? Your conversations, the topics and tone in which you engage those conversations, is Christ preeminent in your pleasures, the things that, you're, that give you satisfaction and joy? How about our eating? Tough one today. Nobody wants to go there. Is Christ preeminent in our eating? How about our leisure in our play? I wonder if Jesus had a leisure budget. Probably not. But leisure and play is so much a part of our lives today, isn't it? But does Christ have preeminence even in how we do that? Does Christ, is Christ preeminent in art, in music, in athletics? Wow, I mean, now we're getting a little... Does Christ not have first place in everything? Are we getting too specific? Are we exaggerating? Are we pushing and prodding in areas that really, you know, enough is enough? The text says, let him have first place in everything. Trust the Spirit. Begin to move in your hearts as you recognize He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in everything, you say, everything, He might be preeminent. Jesus stands above all, doesn't He? And just when we thought we were just about done, verse 19 says this, and this is one that I honestly just struggle to get my mind around, to really give it adequate attention, to understand it. But listen to these words, Jesus stands above all, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Let's say that again, because I think I think, you know, like we're whizzing by in our cars. We're going to miss the fine detail on the mansion because we're going too fast. Listen to this. For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. All the fullness. You see, what's going on there? Well, you think about Old Testament, how it shaped Paul. And you look back at how God has progressively revealed Himself in Scripture, and you begin to remember the book of Deuteronomy, where, again, the people of Israel are being called out of Egypt and are wandering and trying to find their way to a place. And in the midst of all that wandering, God is saying to them on a number of occasions, I want a place for my name to dwell, right? For his essence, his presence, his power to live and dwell amongst his people. That's what God wants. We see throughout the scriptures that the tabernacle and then eventually the temple are that place where the name, the identity, and the power of God was to dwell in the midst of His people. And then we see that the Jerusalem, and in Isaiah, and in the Psalms, that there's this city called Zion. And that Zion was this 
heavenly city, this, this expectation in the future, where in that city the Lord would be pleased for His name to dwell, in His identity to be resident in the midst of His people. And then you read this, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That in the person of Jesus Christ, God is pleased for all of His fullness to dwell, His name, His identity in a person, not a building. Christ is the fulfillment of that place. This is Jesus. He's Zion. He's the temple. He's the tabernacle of God in the midst of His people. That's Jesus. Christ is the place in which the name, the identity, and the essence of God dwells. All of it. I think F.F. Bruce summarizes it well when he says, the totality of the divine essence and power is resident in Christ. He is the one, all-sufficient intermediary between God and the world of humanity. And all the attributes of God are disclosed in Him. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hang out there a little bit. Jesus stands above all, doesn't He? And in this moment, as we go to verse 19 into 20, I could be reading into this, but I'm just letting you know a little bit about how I feel as I'm engaging the text. We're going there. It seems to me that there's this succession of statements about the unparalleled nature of the person and essence of Jesus Christ. He stands above all. And then in this moment, I feel like we catapult off the text in some sort of climactic moment. That there's something radical about this God, this Jesus, that He's doing that has such application to our lives that Jeremy's actually going to talk more about next week. The text goes on to say, on verse 20, I'm sorry, not only was all the fullness of God pleased to dwell in Jesus, but also says, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on heaven, I'm sorry, whether on earth or in heaven. Bottom line, in this God, In this Jesus, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the one who is the firstborn over all creation, the one who created all things and sustains all things, that Jesus is the same person that God has chosen in His divine wisdom to set forth as the way by which He reconciled all things to Himself. That Jesus, the same one is the one He has chosen to reconcile all things to Himself. That word reconciliation is an important one. What is that? What does it mean to say that God has reconciled 
all things to Himself through Jesus Christ. And I love the divine initiative you see in that. Where are we? I don't know. In the all things statement, I know what God has done. He has reconciled to Himself all things. This is the work and initiative of God. His action on behalf of humanity. This is the term. It's a relational one. You know, I think about reconciliation. I got an undergrad in accounting. Uh, no, I can't do your taxes because I forgot everything. Um, I'm still, I, two plus two is four. I'm back there, you know. Um, but I think about accounting, but it's not about accounting. It's relational in nature. It's a relational term. So Christ is, is in this moment declared to be the creator and reconciler of all things. But implicit in that statement is what Peter O'Brien says is estrangement. If there's creation and there's reconciliation, something's gone wrong in the middle, right? If there's creation and then there's reconciliation, if he's created all things and reconciled all things, what happened? What's the deal? You know, at, at the end of the day where we come face to face in this text with a hostility in the world, an enmity that exists between God and his creation, a, a lack of peace. And you say, look at the world, and you look at your own life, and, and how you feel in relationship to God and other people, and I think it's easy for us to believe that there's a lack of peace in the world, isn't there? We don't know how to quantify it. We may not know how to define it today. Maybe we're too afraid to. But I think everyone at the end of the day wakes up and goes to bed with the recognition that something is not right. With the world... And with me. Friends, the Bible teaches that what's wrong is sin. Sin. If you go back into the story, people lived in harmony with God in creation. But our act of rebellion and disobedience put us in a state of death as promised by God. That if we were to eat of that tree, we would surely die. And in that moment, the Bible goes on to talk about the fact that while we're still made in His image, the image is distorted. And sin has twisted us. And so that we no longer live in unhindered fellowship with our Creator. And that really we live in enmity and hostility with Him. And there's this lack of peace in the world. And there's a lack of peace in the deepest part of who we are. Because life is not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to know God. We're supposed to live in friendship with God. But sin has ruined it. And also, going with our sin is the righteous judgment and indignation of our holy God. So in this moment, we hear reconciliation. We hear about, we come face to face implicitly with our sin, our brokenness. The twisted nature of the world in which we live. And we need someone to save us from the wrath of God. We need someone to come and to save us from the righteous indignation that we so deserve for our sin. And we see these words. And through Him, God is reconciling to Himself all things. In, in other words, God has acted objectively, right? In Jesus Christ to reconcile the world to Himself. 
The word means to exchange. Enmity for friendship. That's a transformation. Enmity for friendship. The word means to affect a thorough change back. It means the removal of enmity. The point is, is that when it says reconciliation, that God has done this, that God has exchanged enmity for friendship. God has affected for us a thorough change back through the removal of hostility. That's the gospel, friends. That's what we believe. This is what God has done. He's reconciled all things to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, in a cosmic sense, in a universal sense, not going for universalism, which means all is saved. I'm not saying that. But in an objective, cosmic sense, God has acted in Jesus Christ to reconcile everything back to Himself. That is, He has done something to take all that was wrong and reverse it and make it right. Tell me that's not hope for the world. And then you ask, well, how did He do it? Well, the text tells us. Isn't that wonderful? Whether in heaven or uh, on earth or in heaven, last phrase, making peace. There it is. That's what reconciliation does. It gives us peace. It institutes a new way of relating with God, a new way of living in relationship to Him and one another, and it's called peace. It's shalom. You've heard that word? Shalom. Things are the way they're supposed to be. That's what God has done. And He's done it in a way that seems a little clunky and awkward. He's given peace through something that was very unpeaceful. Through the blood, death of Jesus. And again, I'm blown away by the fact that we go through this long list of who Jesus is, and in the end we see that that Jesus bled to death on behalf of sinful humanity. I can't even get there, but it's true. The same Jesus that we talked about for almost an hour and a half now is the same Jesus that willingly submitted Himself to the will of the Father to reconcile all things back to Him through His crucifixion. His real, actual, factual, bloody death on behalf of the world. That's how God did it. He did not achieve it by ignoring our sins by accommodating our sin, or by letting it go. And again, not to mess with Silas, but it was interesting. We were doing a little family conflict resolution the other night, and we're like, what do we do when we hurt one another? And Silas is like, let it go, let it go. I'm like, Disney theology in my home. Sort of. Sort of, Silas. But how do we let it go? How does it go? Through the death Blood and resurrection of Jesus. That's how. It's necessary blood. And today, so many people want to do away with blood. They don't want to talk about the death of Jesus. They don't want to deal with that. It's a little scary. It's a little horrific. It's, it's almost like this picture of some sort of cosmic child abuse between an angry dad and an unfortunate son. But friends, that is not the case. 
We cannot push aside the atonement and expect to have peace. We need the atonement. We need the blood of Jesus. Or there is no salvation. There's no forgiveness. If there is no, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's no acceptance. There's no peace from God. It's necessary. Right? When I see the blood, I'll pass over you in Exodus. Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Spurgeon says it this way, There is not, I repeat it again, the slightest atom of saving power anywhere but in the blood of Jesus. That blood has the only power to save. And aught else that you rely upon shall be a refuge of lies. For peace with God, for peace in any way, shape, or form, to be forgiven of sin, anything else that we cling to other than the blood of Jesus, he says, well, is a refuge of lies. This is the rock, and this is the work that is perfect. But all other things are daydreams, he says. They must be swept away in the day when God shall come to try our work of what sort it is. The blood stands out in solitary majesty, the only rock of our salvation. And so we sing, right? Oh, precious, right? Is that flow that makes us white as snow? No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is who He is. If you're here today, and you feel like something's not right, there's no peace with God, and you, wanna, you want that, you want, you want to know uh, with assurance that you're at peace with your Creator, that you have forgiveness of sin. Cling to the cross. Hang out there. See Jesus for all that He is and His love and His willingness to lay down His life in obedience to the Father so that you may have eternal shalom. So that you can walk even in these moments expectant of a heavenly one that says, you know what? I'm a mess to some degree, but in Jesus Christ, everything is the way it's supposed to be. I have peace, right? Jesus, His death, His blood is our salvation. So we come to an end of this text. And, uh, you know, I can't help but think about who Christ is in relationship to who we are. Some would say that comparison is the thief of joy, right? You've ever heard of that? Comparison is the thief of joy. That is, you know, in our world today, we try, we get ourselves a house, we get ourselves a car, we have particular uh, uh, goals that we have, achievements, certain successes, we uh, dress a certain way, we work out and try to maintain a particular body, and at the end of the day, image matters, right? How other people see you. 
And I know uh, for many of us, we struggle with comparison. That is, well, my life isn't as good as that person's life. My performance it doesn't measure up in any way, shape, or form uh, to, to, to Bill's performance. We measure ourselves against one another. We have a relative existence. We like that. I'm not as bad as that guy, or I'm not as good as that person. But when we look at someone that's better than us and has it all together, and when they're incomparable and they're unachievable on our own strength, and we fail and we struggle, often we can lose joy. Comparison can be joy's thief. We could look at Jesus in relationship to God, and we could almost lose our joy in it. We try to measure ourselves up because our own self-righteousness is something that we can treasure and hold on to. Right? We can struggle with that. Our own performance seems to always fall short. We look at Jesus being the image of God, the, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the body of the church, the beginning, the firstborn. Man, Jesus is everything. And we come to the recognition that while Jesus is, we aren't. Friends, that it's only bad news. It's only the thief of joy to stand in the presence of the incomparable, uh, incomparable one. It's only a thief if our sin's in the way, right? If we recognize, if we come, like Jesus says, that blessed are the poor in spirit, yeah, we're bankrupt. We're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom, right, of heaven. Yeah, that's right. This is joy-giving, right? This is, this is not a thief of joy, our comparison. The fact that Jesus is infinitely incomparable, that He stands above all, is a joy-giver for us. Not a joy-stealer. His person and performance is not just above us. It's for us. And as Colossians goes on to say, that it's, in us, right? And it's through us. And it's before us as we wait for it someday. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus stands above all. It's my hope that these times have been, one last two weeks that have really helped you see that Jesus is so much more than we're apt to give Him credit for. He's bigger. He stands taller. He shines brighter. And that my hope is that we will worship Him and obey Him and treasure Him much more deeply because of this. Let's pray. Jesus, you do indeed stand above all. I confess that any attempt to articulate the truths of Colossians 1, 15-20 is, at best, uh, insignificant in comparison to the truth itself. Lord, may Your Word shape us. May the truth of who You are 
just take residence in our lives and may we live it out. May you be preeminent in everything. May you not be a segment or a fraction or a percentage. May you be our life, we pray. And may we be proclaiming the true Jesus. No matter what t-shirt we wear, it doesn't really matter. The substance of our lives matter. And may the world see you in all of your glory through our lives that bow the knee to you as the one who is preeminent over us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.